0: Hello and welcome to Simplified. My name is Gurjot.
1: My name is Michael.
0: And today we're joined by Dr. David Garcia. David, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me here.
1: So, what do you do and why is it cool? In 30 seconds.
2: Oh, in 30 seconds, okay. We call it computational social science and what we do is that we analyze human behavior through digital spaces. In a way that we can see large scales and very detailed resolutions that we couldn't see with experiments. Or okay.
0: okay. Could you start off by giving us some examples of the work you do.
2: So, for example, well, I would say that we have studied the resilience of online communities, or how people run away from a website and they start using something else. Like instead of MySpace, they use Facebook. Yeah. And that's something that yes, social scientists were wondering how people live. The community and go to another one. What, what
1: do you mean? How like the reasons they do it?
2: Exactly. So what what motivates them to stay active and what drives them to be active somewhere else? And that's that was very hard to do with service because you can only find a few people that tell you why they left or, or whether they are active or not. But using all these digital traces from a whole website, we can see what are the conditions that they keep them active or leave, mm-hmm. and may basically make predictions or understand when a website is going to collapse. Okay. So where do you get all this data from? So in this case I'm, I'm talking about the autopsy of Friendster and we got the data from the Internet Archive. Okay. So they knew that it was going to be discontinued and they crawled all the publicly available data and put it for research.
1: Wait, what in, do you mean they knew it was going to be discontinued?
2: Yeah, so, so Friendster announced that they didn't have enough uh, market share of uh, users and they said we're going to take everything down Okay. And then the Internet Archive is trying to, to pre, preserve yeah, exactly preserve all this stuff as a library. <laughs> yeah. and they just jumped in and, and crawled everything they could. and they did a really nice job and many scientists are using this data.
1: And what kind of data are you looking at? Are you looking at posts are you looking at?
2: So in the first study we looked only at the relationships between people, so whether they are friends or not, and mm-hmm. some time information like when they join the network. But there's much more data and we have analyzed some of it. So you can see the profiles that people abandoned there, and you can see the information they were displaying at that time, including things that you can't see nowadays in other social networks. Like, publicly they would say their age, or their gender, or even their sexual orientation. So it was another time. (laughs) But that's uh, that case. So sometimes we uh, retrieve our own data sets, or we do some sort of experiments or measurements. So that's an exception in which we were lucky. Yeah. Okay, so what kind of results did you get from this Friendster data analysis? From that one we applied the previous model of the decision that people do to keep active or not on a social network depending on the benefits you get from it or how many friends you have. And yeah. it was interesting that this, this very simple concept of people follow uh, incentives or, or people respond to costs and benefits was uh, good enough to make a reproduction of how friends are collapsed. So it started with a lot of active users and then there was like a huge cascade that made them leave.
1: You mean like so, like some people left and because of that the other friends had less friends which made the value yes, smaller. Yes, exactly,
2: exactly. So if your value grows with the amount of friends you have, uh, mm-hmm. these, will, these kind of cascades could ripple uh, and create mm-hmm. a large collapse. And that seems to be what we found. Um, it was very good because it also opened a lot of questions and. Well, it, it helped us to point to things we didn't understand and that drove uh, further research. So it was more, I would say more than f- having findings, it opened a lot of questions and that's <laughs> probably the best kind of research and the hardest to make,
0: yeah. yeah. So people, is this, you saw this for Friendster, is this the same for all social networks? Or?
2: yeah that's a very good question so the motivations and the benefits that users get from a social network don't need to be the same and don't need to work the same way so for example in that case we compared it with other social network data sets we had at the time like um, some data from orcat from lead journal a bit from facebook But it's a bit simplifying to assume that this kind of motivation function or these benefits and costs are the same uh, in all the social networks Mm -hmm. and the costs change differently depending on the platform redesign or if the technology works well or not. So I think if someone wants to use this to evaluate the health of their social network, they should make the study to measure these kind of benefit functions and really try to prevent it from collapsing
0: all this data that's just publicly available it of course has some repercussions because there's of course this entire idea about um, just based on the metadata available you can kind of connect the dots and create an entire profile about the person Mm -hmm. so
2: did you also look into that yes so that's the second uh, study we did on friendster data Mm -hmm. so because there we had all these profiles that were abandoned over time we can see how friendster evolved and we can kind of roll back time and see Uh, who was in Friendster and who was not in Friendster yet at that time. So we wanted to evaluate this idea that uh, online social networks can create shadow profiles, which is uh, inferring information from non-users by the information that the users leave. And going over time we could see that Friendster could have predicted this information that was private about non-users at that time, if they had access to these connections to users outside. And nowadays, when you install the Facebook app, for example, on your phone, you are sharing your contacts with Facebook. Mm -hmm. And then Facebook can see your friends who are not on Facebook through your app and can make inferences on these people. So we have evidence that it is possible to make shadow profiles. Not that they are being made, but the technology is is allowing that.
1: But by shadow profile, basically you mean predicting what his friends, like a person's friends, are like?
2: It's more like predicting one person from the friends of this person. So you pull information about one individual who is not in the social network from different friends that are (laughs) in the social network. So imagine that you're outside Facebook or Google or anything. There's many pointers at you from people inside, and by leveraging on where they are, or who they are, or what they do, they can tell a lot about
1: you. Can determine his name, his age, his.
2: They can. So we have uh, good evidence for uh, they can infer your sexual orientation very well, wow. and they can tell uh, your marital status and your age, uh, and we're evaluating for your location. And I think that the problem is not exactly what can be inferred, but the general concept that. Something can, can be flipping, fair, yeah. exactly. And this idea that individuals have control over their privacy, and you can install some sort of a data butler that prices your data and sells it here and there, yeah. doesn't really work because you don't own your data. You share it with the people you interact with, and this can be used against you if nothing else protects you, basically.
0: Yeah. So how how does how do you deal with it? I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you analyze this, of course, so you you have evidence that this happens. So in your personal life, what do you do? Do you you use social
2: networks? Myself. So I I have already given in. So even before (laughs) uh, I was aware and worried about these things, uh, I I had already become a member. So there's little you can to go back. So of course, you can try to use your right to be forgotten and so on. But of course, the bureaucratic uh, hassle for that is maybe not, not paying off in my case. Um, I would say that, I mean, we have evidence that it's possible, and the whole Facebook story on when there was a leak and they noticed they were filling the phone numbers from other friends um, was definitely worrying. And what highlights is that maybe it's not enough to take their word of these companies uh, mm-hmm. in, in what they do or what they don't. Would we need something else if we are talking about a fundamental right, like a right of privacy what is the solution is something that is up to question so some people go more for regulation and having some sort of a, a state agency that monitors what it's done and it might be very hard to implement at this point uh, some other people go more for like data cooperatives and the users have their own data and can use it freely and so on so there are some alternatives uh, which one will work is a matter of time i guess
0: <laughs> so what else are you looking on apart from this this data from social networks you probably also
2: analyze mm-hmm. twitter data right because yeah so one that the one of the latest things we've done was to try to measure this uh, motivation function for twitter yeah that was okay. very recent and we were wondering about if there is a possibility that there's a point in which you share too much information with twitter uh, <laughs> and you are you are too exposed so to speak and yeah. um, whether this might make some users leave because they're feeling that it's not their group of friends anymore and they're just talking to a larger public. So when we're talking about...
1: So you mean like if a user shares too much and gets too little from other people, he might feel like he's putting in too much...
2: Yeah, so it's if they're feeling some sort of a risk by giving away too much or by, by having too much attention, that's exactly the point. So like if someone accidentally goes viral... And they get all exactly. this public attention. Yes. if if you don't want to say anything, just in case it becomes another uh, yeah. shitstorm, basically. And it's <laughs> um, very good because this kind of intuition we can put it down in quantitative terms. So we can say when you have when you have few friends, the more friends you have, or the more followers you have, the better for you, and the less likely you will be to become inactive or to leave Twitter. But then there might be a turning point in which you are already getting a lot of attention and then the more followers you get, the more likely you will be to leave. So it will look like an inverted U function. Yeah. And we precisely evaluated this and we saw that it, it does happen. So there's a kind of a turning point in which more friends is not better. And we interpret this as people are starting to worry about this too large attention, privacy <laughs> issues, is not what I thought it was, and so on. Or nobody pays attention to me, they're just uh, yeah, well, yeah. following me for no reason. But whatever happens is that there is uh, this kind of uh, non-monotonicity or this weird change of behavior when you have too many followers and that we could measure it in Twitter.
1: Yeah. And how big is the scale? Is this like depends ah, so on the person or
2: um, changes? Yeah, so we didn't look at individual changes. So we just have a very large data set of 40 million uh, people. Yeah. And uh, we didn't go into demographics like, for example, the older people or the women worry more about this or not. But there might be some factors, yeah, of course. So in the model, we took everyone as the same, basically. Okay. What
1: could social networks like Twitter do to keep the users knowing data like this?
2: And knowing that the data is being analyzed? or uh,
1: no, Knowing that there's like an inverted U
0: function.
2: Aha, when it's too much. Mm, that's a good question. So usually they want to encourage everyone to get more followers or to, to follow each other more. Um, because, yeah, it's... it's it's a very it's a really tough question. So you, we have to keep in mind the business models of, of an online social network. Mm-hmm. The business model is selling the attention of users to advertisers. So if encouraging users to have more followers and follow each other more will ease this, then they will definitely do so. And if not, they will not. So I think there's a risk to benefit trade-off. And maybe they don't mind that they're risking some users if they get more attention and more value from the other users. So I uh, yeah, I don't have an answer, but I think it might not be easy to answer. Also, yeah. oh, so you mean like creating
1: an environment that stimulates attention, that gives people the opportunity to get a lot of attention, mm-hmm. uh, in the end creates many more people b- b- before this kind of drop-off on the u function?
2: Yeah, exactly. So for the average Joe, it's, it's much better to get more mm-hmm. followers, for anyone like us. It's only when you're starting getting in on the thousands. When and
1: that's region. relatively rare, I guess.
2: Relatively rare. It's rare, rare. Ah, so we think we didn't calculate the exact point, but it's about a thousand followers. Oh so wow! Okay. Between a thousand and ten thousand is when things start to turn around.
0: Cool. Yeah. But what you were discussing about how um, how can social networks keep people knowing that there is this tip-off point of no return? Could it be possible that they try to create bubbles for people so they don't get uh, you know lashback? It's just mm-hmm. good things. Uh-huh. Yes. positive so, like, reinforcement <laughs> positive reinforcement yeah I mean that's what uh, happens with Facebook yeah. right that you get you get to read the news mm-hmm. exactly that aligns with your political mm-hmm. viewpoint
2: yeah so I suspect that if this is if this is happening it's not really by design so when they were doing these friendship recommendation uh, systems and they recommend you who to become a friend of they just try to look for people who are similar to you and that's the, the principle of homophily you will be more likely to make a link uh, to them. Um, this, of course, creates this kind of filter bubble and, and people are more connected and more likely to receive information that c- confirms their, their viewpoints because they get it from their friends. Uh, but one thing I could say uh, in favor of websites in this case or online social networks is that there's nothing more bubbled like than our offline life. Like when we were living in a town and everybody agreed with us. And what uh, we we'll say a pre-modern society was a bubble society. And what's happening is that we're becoming aware of this and we are seeing in the data and in the people's behavior exactly what's happening. So I would say more that it's helping us to know that we have a problem rather than creating a problem. And the real problem is that it's not solving the problem. And that we need new mechanisms that might help to overcome so, I imagine even
1: in a university environment like here, we're also in an offline bubble and an online bubble.
2: Mm-hmm. That's, no, I, that, I totally agree. So, uh, w- well, ETH is a bit better because we're really <laughs> in the urban campus and we're mixed with the rest of the city. Mm-hmm. But in other universities I, that I have visited for like a week or so, they live completely in a bubble. <laughs> I remember being in a, in a very international uh, German university. And I was talking to the students, and they never met German people. I said, "Like, uh, wow. so did you, what, what? Did you ever meet a German person?" And they said, uh, "Yes, uh, there was a drunk guy in the train the other day." <laughs> it was so they were really in, in their own intellectual bubble. And at least myself, I prefer not to be in that kind of uh, yeah intellectual bubble because it's really it creates some group thinking, and you live in this picture of the university students sitting on a patch of of grass and talking yeah. about the future. <laughs> you think that
0: offline lives are are possibly the root cause for why we see filter bubbles in the online space as well is that Mm -hmm. uh, a good relation to draw that um, away from keyboard is not that different from online
2: Uh, yes so i would i will say so yes so if we have filter bubbles uh, offline we have them even stronger than online so at least online we have the chance to get away we just don't do it because we are lazy or whatever, we were happier in the bubble. Um, some people will say, okay, mass media was helping us to break that bubble when we were offline. So that was the, the equivalent of breaking the bubble. But um, just mass media is becoming another kind of bubble. So they're also selling your attention and they're trying to manufacture consent and so on. So I don't think mass media has been the solution. And if it had been the solution, we would have already not, not have this problem at all offline. Um, so I think it's a matter of, of design and of time that, that it gets solved um, whether online social media make money out of this being a bubble is another question so the polarization and the people fighting with each other across these bubbles might bring attention and bring precisely also it the also might actually be a good thing
1: to put people against, people against each other, but
2: yes. so that could possibly be short lived exactly, so for how long will it survive yeah. and if people will get tired is a question and that again brings to this kind of too much fo- too many followers too much attention might be bad because they're not your real <laughs> friends yeah. and then you're fighting too much so whether it is sustainable is something i doubt yes i don't think it is could,
1: wait so could could this create um, like stronger bubbles if you expose people to different viewpoints like they, it reinforces uh-huh. their own opinion
2: so there's yeah there's these um, there's some psychological effects that when you're talking to someone who has an opposite view of yours If you are uh, presenting facts that are really radical against the view of the person, they don't tend to converge, they tend to reject them and go more into Mm -hmm. their views. So there might be a critical point of polarization that brings people away from each other rather than closer to each other. Um, It all depends a lot on the emotions and the discourse, and how people are really talking, on which situation, etc. So I, I see it myself, for example, when we are have scientists talking about vaccines or talking about homeopathy, so they usually take a very snarky, very insulting uh, (laughs) attitude of like, oh, you're all idiots, you didn't study anything, you don't understand papers and so on. And that doesn't help. That just simply makes people uh, retreat back into their ideas and never change their opinion. So it's it's a slow and boring process to make people (laughs) change their views and it will not happen by thinking yourself better because you're in the right. I don't know if you've been following
0: the latest developments on Reddit about uh, this entire subreddit uh, called The Donald that is full of Trump supporters and they had, what we're talking about, if you can put these two communities together, will that be a short-lived, you know, popularity spur for the social network? And I think that's kind of what happened with Reddit from what I saw uh, because the rest of Reddit was always at war with these Trump subreddits and that lasted a couple of months and last week the Trump subreddit kind of isolated themselves they made themselves private and now they're saying
2: they're going to leave Reddit and move to some other mm-hmm. social <laughs> network so, mm-hmm. so it might be short, short-lived at least I would say individual cases of polarization like Trump as a topic mm-hmm. they are short-lived but the dynamics of people fighting about stuff yeah. As some sort of a fluctuating thing, it might might stay longer. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> say is necessarily one thing. Yeah.
0: Okay. And when you look at comments online, it's mostly what you come across is just hate speech. You know, even if it's a nice YouTube video of I don't know a kitten or a puppy or something, <laughs> there will always be some dislikes and some snarky comments about <laughs> it. And so, do you think that's kind of like a Polarized uh, view of humans because we just established that what we do in real life is kind of a precursor to what we do online. Mm -hmm. But people like the entire trolling behavior because online this slight wail of anonymity gives you. This open uh, sphere where you can just go to anything. <laughs> yeah. So do so, you think the analysis that you do is kind of not entirely uh, representative of what's so? Different?
2: Okay. What what I would say is that our instros, introspection as users is not really representative of of what it really is out there. So when we see when you see a puppy video, it's because probably you don't upload puppy videos and you just ended up watching this thing that has nothing to do with you. Yeah. And the pathways we follow into looking at this content are very different from what we will be offline, that will be just talking to your friends. And this creates these negative reactions once in a while. And this is what we call the burst of the filter bubble. So the person that created the puppy video created it within the bubble of puppy friends and everybody loved it. And then there's like this
1: guy who's not interested in puppies, he he just loves cars or something.
2: Exactly. So then suddenly it becomes too notorious, it breaks this bubble and then people who don't like puppies or don't care about puppies or directly hate puppies then find out this puppy video and then there's a backlash of negativity. Mm. So the filter bubble has this second phase, so to speak. It's not only that you get information that you like but that sometimes you will get information you really dislike from the other side of the bubble, and that is what creates this negative reaction. How can you all like this so much? It's kind
1: of like create like this surprise, like, whoa.
2: Yes, why, why is this crap here? what you're. Why are these people doing this?
0: Yeah, there's one comment you always see in YouTube videos, why was this in my recommended list? Uh-huh, exactly, yes, so why, why the hell is this so important?
2: And um, this is basically a natural surprise, defensive reaction. You see something that you're not used to and your, your instant mm-hmm. reaction is a defensive one. So I would say that, of course, anonymity is allowing this and you don't have the costs of saying this face to face. But it's something that it seems to be pretty natural and that we pay a lot of attention to. So what happens is that in these cases, we have a lot of people saying a lot of negative stuff and seeing the negative stuff of others, so that creates a sampling bias in which our perception is that things are very negative and everybody's a troll. But when you look at the data and you really analyze the content over all messages, the average is actually positive and there are all these little bubbles in which everyone is very positive and only once in a while we connect across and we're all very negative. So, so
1: when, when we say we feel like the whole internet is negative, it's just these few, fewer comments that, just that get a
2: lot of attention, yes, and the, and a few cases in which a lot of people get together and they're all negative together, yeah, and they feel that a lot of people are negative, but it's just in in certain moment in time, and then you get an oversample of people being negative. But then if you see them in the insider bubble with their friends, they're actually positive. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the data and we don't trust our introspection, and that's precisely the the principle of psychology of of doing some experiment and analyzing something rather than trusting our intuition, is that. To my surprise, <laughs> also, <laughs> um, people are indeed more positive than, than negative. in general. Yeah.
0: Okay. Could you guide us through your process? I mean, how do you come up with an idea of what you want to research on and what what's the process?
2: So the process I would like to follow, <laughs> or <laughs> I, I think is the right process, uh, starts from social science, so from a theory that has basically observed some behavior or some phenomenon and formulated some hypotheses and principles that explain this and then we transform those hypotheses into something that is quantifiable and and testable and then we look for the the data that uh, will help us online to test this theory and and find out if it really works, if it doesn't, in which situations it does and so on. So that's the best case scenario and which I, I, I try to put my effort to do so. Sometimes it doesn't work so simply so sometimes we have new phenomena online that they don't have a theory that tries to explain them and we Analyze them before we have a theory so we go kind of backwards in yeah. in a first data then theory way which is not so sustainable And I hope that social scientists take over and then start producing theories about it And in other cases and um, I mean not myself But the field also goes too much into attention economy also and then whatever might grab people's attention now is what gets some some data off
0: one yeah do you you think the work that takes place in computational social science is in isolation of you know psychology or sociology or does it always work in tandem because it kind of doesn't make sense if you analyze data and then you don't connect it to actual sociological studies Mm -hmm. or psychological studies because then it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's just easy. in isolation, yes.
2: Yeah. So there has been a little fad of data driven studies, that they're called, and you just grab some cool data, make some plots, and do some <laughs> statistics yeah. and tell a story about it. Uh, and that's fine for, for an exercise, but this doesn't construct a, a scientific community and, and a real body of scientific knowledge. So of course the best is if you see and you're analyzing motivation, you go to the motivation literature, you spend your month reading uh, boring psychology papers you never read before, and then you come up with some actual uh, question. That's the hard thing. Uh, It's starting to happen, and I think the, the whole field of computational social science is maturing, and people both in the data analysis part are being more serious about interpreting things in the right way, and people in the social sciences are starting to pay more attention and use some online data sets in a better way even than in computer science. So there is a convergence and I think there's a silver lining out there. We made many mistakes as a uh, a community, community, as a a scientific discipline, but the the key is to learn from those mistakes and only make it better later.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. That's good. Now we'd like to get to know you a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, what's your background in, like, educationally?
2: So, I did a bachelor's in computer science in Spain, and then I came here to to ETH to make a master's in theoretical computer science. And during my master's thesis, I started working on uh, graphs and some ideas that were, were very related to social networks, and that's what brought me closer to social science questions. So I found myself that I didn't want to study algorithms and make mathematical <laughs> proofs, I, I wanted to study humans. Yeah. So then I came to do my PhD uh, in, in MTech and I was studying collective emotions in online communities and so on. So I did my PhD here and my, my first postdoc with some funding from the SNF and well now I'm about to leave actually, in September I'm going to Vienna to start my own research group there. So. Mm. I, well, Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Start your uh, own research group. Yes, yes, yes. I got a huge grant from a very nice uh, foundation in Vienna, so I have funding for PhD students and postdocs and so on. Oh, so, amazing. Yeah, and I'm really lucky and really uh, privileged <laughs> 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 uh, and I will do my best there, so for the next few years I will definitely be in Vienna and doing this kind of research. Yeah.
1: You. Are you going to continue this research that you established here, kind of?
2: in a similar being yes so Mm -hmm. then i will be completely independent researcher so i will do things pretty much my own way
0: yeah cool (laughs) (laughs) so what was your motivation behind moving from theoretical computer science to social science i mean was it just it felt more interesting
2: so i noticed i noticed it at some point that i was trying to do that all 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 the way along. So I didn't notice (laughs) exactly. So I I found I had to give a talk at a seminar um, about a very nice way to solve a theoretical problem and so on. And I found myself trying to argue why we should solve this problem. Like the real-life implications. Yes, so making an example of where (laughs) this will apply in a factory or whatever. And, and then the, the boss dog that was uh, supervising this said, uh, why are you doing this? I mean, we don't care about <laughs> what's, going to, what's the reason behind. We don't care about the motivation. We only want to solve the problem. And then I found, okay, this, there's a problem here. <laughs> I, I, I was very happy. I learned a lot. And then I thought, this is not what I want to do. <laughs> okay. So I want to really understand the motivation and solve problems that have a meaning and that uh, drive us somewhere. So there are different uh, ways of doing stuff and what they do is wonderful, but it wasn't what they wanted to do.
1: How has reading mounts of psychological studies and doing all this data analysis affected your own personal life and your way of thinking?
2: Uh Aha, okay, good question. So, (laughs) there was a time in the beginning in which people were starting to claim that I was a bit too analytical of their behavior but in general, that, I thought I was wrong. I wasn't trying to understand them. <laughs> I was just simply using a little bit of a different language uh, when talking yeah. about what we do and that was what was creating the misperception of my friends and, and and colleagues that I was being more analytical of what they, yeah, like trying to uncover their motivations. Rather so than, in a
0: way, when yeah. your friends say, I put this photo online for likes, you say, well, that's because that maximizes your utility function." It was <laughs> a bit like that, yeah, yes, exactly. So
2: I wasn't really trying to say, you are worse because you do this, or trying yeah. to demystify their motivations. Uh, I, I was just talking with the same things, but I was suffering to, to use the different terminology. Techni- yeah. So that that was kind of one way in which it affected my personal life. So it wasn't bad. I mean, it's not like I lost friends or anything. Like yeah. <laughs> but I had to compensate and and yeah, to really try to have at the same time both registries of language. You know, a colloquial and a technical one. Um, in terms of other things, so my own uh, online behavior had a, a, like a phase in which I was seeking conflict and looking for the worst of the worst of the worst, then after a while you get a costume and then I found it boring, so to speak. So then I went, I, I'm I not very active anymore and I have this phase in which I just see an outrageous comment and I don't reply, I don't care, I yeah.
0: So you, you <laughs> read the tip off of your
2: inverted U function. May, may, yeah, so I haven't become inactive, so I still do things and so on, but um, I, I kind of start writing a comment and I say, what the hell, I'm going to waste half of the morning fighting with these people, so then I just don't do it. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. Okay, one final question. What's on your bookmarks bar?
2: Oh. Good question. Uh, what kind of content do you consume? <laughs> mm-hmm. Lots of data sets. Uh, <laughs> let me see. This is quite a private question, but I don't mind. I, I don't have anything embarrassing. <laughs> you, can, you can only uh, sh- sh- tell us about
0: things that you're okay with.
2: No, what's going to be the most embarrassing is that I don't know how to open the bookmarks. no <laughs> <So laughs> well,
0: you can... can here? No, uh, if you go no, in the bookmarks uh-huh, here.
2: Yeah. yeah, because I have this hidden. Uh, bookmarks. So you have, like... Reddit, everything you ever wanted to know about it. Uh, Reddit Scraper, Reddit (laughs) (laughs) Archive, okay, lots of What's
1: everything you ever want to know about it? Let's see. It's like a subreddit.
2: It's it's a 404, so the page is not there anymore. So this is some article about Reddit, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. (laughs) So so you you save articles? Yeah, sometimes, yeah, I I see interesting articles and I save them. Uh, I mostly use it for resources. So maybe we can go to show all bookmarks. So, for example, I find a really interesting data set, like the first one you find, an internet archive. So, yeah. I have a, some, some, something I found I and mean, then I visit it later when I think so I have you, a question. Do you like
0: that when you just move, uh, doing things online, you find a very interesting data set? You mm-hmm. just save it, well, maybe someday I'll Someday I'll have a question
2: it. for this, yes, ah, exactly. Okay. So, I see it as there's an exploration of data and we just need to have the map of what is what. Yeah. And then, once we have the question, when well, we we'll go back to the data and see if we can test it. That, that's, yeah, that's kind of what, what this shows. So other things, yeah, Pfft, not a lot. Uh, cheap dentist in Switzerland. <laughs> uh, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> more data sets, yeah, yeah, I think that was Cam. <laughs> um, yeah, some articles, like, uh, yeah, about data. So, yeah, they, articles that contain data sets that I found interesting. Uh, erased tweets by politicians and a data set of, of oh. erased tweets. <laughs> yeah, it's all data, I'm sorry. <laughs> no Are there specific
1: websites with, for example, newspapers or magazines or just specific media content that you consume regularly?
2: Uh-huh. So the most regular one I consume is a Spanish version of Reddit. So it's okay. not exactly. Spanish Reddit. Yes, it's not exactly the same. So it's more like a news aggregator in which it has a front page and it's supposed to be newsworthy content. So it's not so fraction as Reddit as sub-communities that talk about stuff. It's more more like Dig used to be. Like really you try to have one uh, central thing. And there has been subject of research by, by other people. It's very interesting. And that's kind of my newspaper or my, my only news source. It's sufficiently short not to overload me. And i just check it a couple of times a day like when I wake up and sometime in the afternoon and I already get content that is both newsworthy in terms of what happens. Like if there's a terrorist attack, you sit there and so yeah. on but also serendipitous enough to have things about ancient Rome or uh, some interesting funny content somewhere, some data set somewhere happens sometimes. So it's um, it's my filter bubble, so to speak. There's uh, (laughs) many nerds like me around uh, the Spanish-speaking world and they have this central source for what we think is important.
0: Do you think this language creates another filter bubble? Because you're reading Mm -hmm. international news, but because it comes with this layer of being in Spanish. It, it kind of creates a bias in the way things are presented.
2: So, it definitely has a focus to Spain, so not even to the Spanish-speaking world. It's mainly Spanish people who use it. Um, so, I think it, there is there is a bubble, but there shouldn't have, it didn't need to have one. Okay. So, uh, when I see the content, 90% of it will be relevant for anyone. All right. It's only about 10% that is about Spain. So we could have had something like that in league or so on but it just didn't happen because it didn't emerge people didn't get together to make a spanish-speaking news subreddit so or something like that so if there's a bubble it's accidental and i think there is there is one yeah <laughs> and uh, exporting this kind of uh, news sites will be much better to have it in english and i will be really happy to have it in english slash and so on try to be similar but they become too focused and too group thinking and too nerdy <laughs> yeah. i would say so there's nothing as general as this in English for me. Yeah. What's it called? It's called Meneame. So it means something like "shake it" okay. when you're trying to attract the attention about something. And of course, it has like any online uh, community has many problems and many crises and so on. But still, uh, it survives and it's not perfect, but it is something that is relevant enough for me.
0: Cool. Okay. Thank you so much, David, for joining okay. us. It was so much fun talking to you.
2: A pleasure, yes. It's been a and good fun. luck
0: with your next Indeed. steps in Vienna. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you liked it, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it and gave us your feedback. We publish a new episode every week. For more details, visit our website, simplified.xyz.